Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Cafe Bitcoin, number one place for Bitcoin news every weekday morning. How are you guys doing? Good morning. I'm I'm doing well. I'm uh, I'm just sitting here, and I was just thinking about you know low preference and and Bitcoin and and just how 99% of the time Bitcoin is just the most boring thing in the world, and then you know the price goes up the price goes down and then it's just boring again and it sometimes it's hard to it's hard to just sit and do nothing and and it's it low time preference is a very difficult thing to achieve amen to that brother it certainly seems boring when you compare it to the traditional financial system especially right now with the debt ceiling drama tomer what's going on how are you <laughs> Folding laundry. How about that for an exciting life? Very nice. Let's go. Yeah, I, I've been, I've been writing and editing all morning, but uh, I wanted to get ready for uh, for Cafe Bitcoin because somebody put me, said that I was appearing on Cafe Bitcoin, and I got the tweet indication, so I didn't want to miss it. Uh, but I'm in the process. Of just moving laundry over from a washing machine to a drying machine, so it's very exciting. That's exciting stuff, though. Yeah, I know. (laughs) People want to live my life, and you know, it's quite, it's quite understandable when they hear. I I also emptied the dishwasher this morning and and put dirty dishes in it. It's really, it's quite, it's quite exciting. They should send a film crew over. That is exciting. It said to hoddle, not to foddle, (laughs) Tomer. Well, uh, my name is Tim Callahan. I'm the lead analyst at Swan. I'm filling in for Alex today. He's taking a much needed, uh, you know, break. He's always here every weekday, and uh, I thought I'd fill in, getting some time off this morning. So, um, yeah, I have uh, something to celebrate. My my sister had a baby last night, so I became an uncle. So that's actually exciting news. And well, I'm congratulations. Also... Thanks, man. And I was yeah, also awesome. at the airport, and my flight was delayed 18 hours at the same time. So. <laughs> So I'm chilling on some AirPods right now. So hopefully I sound okay. Um, but, you know, welcome to Cafe Bitcoin, guys. It's always exciting news. We got an exciting uh, episode today with uh, SAS Mining. Uh, give us a little bit of update in the mining world, um, which we'll get into later. Um, but in terms of some news, um, you know, we've, we've had a lot of uh, pro-Bitcoin legislation pass through uh, recently, which is really beneficial, obviously, to the industry and then Texas specifically. Um, so I thought maybe we could start off with some of that news. Uh, recently, uh, both a bill passed that was uh, 
beneficial for Bitcoin. It allows uh, Bitcoin miners to establish a registration process and share information with ERCOT, uh, the grid uh, over in Texas, um, which will help improve that uh, grid reliability and share information with one another. So improve transparency. Um, the other thing was a, a, a anti-Bitcoin mining bill did not pass. Um, so there's a lot of uproar about that um, over the last couple of months. And that did not pass. So, so Bitcoin miners will still be able to um, provide their benefits for stabilizing the power grid there. Um, so two wins there. And then the last one was another bill that passed uh, that basically made proof of reserves uh, a, an accounting standard uh, basically accepted uh, through the legislation process um, in Texas. And so those are three things that happened that were all beneficial for Bitcoin. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts around those three things, but I thought it was pretty cool. Three wins in the bear market, I would say, and uh, exciting stuff. Can you can you tell me what uh, proof of reserve means? Well, in this case, it would be uh, an exchange or uh, you know, crypto or Bitcoin financial services provider uh, providing both the asset and liability side to their balance sheet, sheets through proof of reserve. So um, obviously the quote-unquote blockchain or Bitcoin is transparent um, and allows them to cryptographically prove um, at least their assets. And But the way that this is written, it would have, they would have to prove both their asset sides as well as the liability sides of their balance sheets. And basically, this is just saying that that should be an accepted um, accounting standard in the state. So that's kind of what it means by that. Uh, Wicked, you got your hand up? Hey, good morning. It's been a few days. I missed you guys. Um, I was out of town for you know my youngest sibling's uh, graduation, so but I'm back in Boston now. Um, I don't know, man. I think this proof of reserves thing is kind of like it's it's a nice idea, but I just don't. I would never trust anybody to like accurately represent their liabilities. I think you know proving your assets is one thing, right? You can. Like you said, cryptographically prove that you have control over you know x amount of Bitcoin um, on the base layer or whatever, right? And then you're just trusting that they're not lying about their liabilities. Um, but it's no, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's any way to to actually prove that you're representing your liabilities uh, accurately, right? You could just lie, which is what <laughs> which is what a lot of companies who who get caught do right like so i mean it's not gonna it's not gonna prevent fraud like ftx because they were actually fraudulent um it, it'll just make the ones who are not fraudulent you know i guess disclose how many assets and liabilities they have but there's still going to be exchanges out there who uh fuck around and find out yeah i would just say you know it, it's not perfect um you know, the liability side will still require probably some outsized audit. And, um, but, you know, it's, it, I think it's an improvement. Um, you know, I, I think that, yeah, it's, it's more tricky to prove the liability sides of things. And so it will require some kind of attestation uh, from an outside auditor. And, um, but, you know, when you combine that with the asset side of things, and then you have um, kind of the same system with the liability side, I think that's an improvement. And um, it's not perfect, but maybe it'll improve some of the transparency and reduce some of the funny business that we've seen 
um, occur in some of these crypto exchanges. But, you know, I think your criticism is warranted for sure. Yeah, what's going on? Good morning, Sam. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, it's, I mean, with with these laws, y'all know how I feel about this stuff. I've said this stuff before, but the, I mean, if they're going to make laws that are in my favor, then, you know, align with my interests, then whatever. I mean, that's, I'd rather them not do that. But I mean, where it gets like funny to me is, and I start to agree with the people who say, Things like it's dangerous to go talking to the government about Bitcoin and and to the people who say like, you know, so for mining, like they, they say things like maybe we shouldn't call certain things certain things. And, you know, I read those comments as they go by and they'll say like the one of the recent ones that I read was from Beauty on and he was saying that, you know, people like the word mining is, you know, like maybe like that was the wrong way to go. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing. The reason being is because like in these people's minds, they think of mining as like extraction of something out of, you know, the ground, I guess, or somewhere that is heavily intensive. And, you know, but at the very basis, it's like what they're really saying to you whenever they try to make a law against mining is, they don't want you to be able to make guesses with your computer. Like essentially, they don't want you to have a computer. They don't want it to make guesses. And then if you had like more than one or or several or a bunch of them making guesses, they don't want that either. And it's not really mining, you know? So I don't really know where I'm going with that. But it's just like when I hear this stuff and I and I see these like people going and like talking to the government about, you know, mining laws and what can be done it's like it's just it's like shenanigans to me like control that that i can't even make guesses with my computer and i can't have a business where i'm making guesses with my computer i don't know i'm probably oversimplifying it do you think it's a worthy uh use of time and resources to you know combat anti-bitcoin mining laws then and I mean, it's one of those things. Yeah. I mean, if you have something that's going against you, I guess if that's your bailiwick and you want to go jump into this fray with the government and you think that it has some kind of a whatever, then fine. I mean, ultimately, how can they stop you from, you know, I mean, they could stop you if you tried to have a business, I guess. But I mean, if you're going to try to do something on your own, I mean, they can't ultimately stop you from from having your computer make guesses like that's that's where I get to it. It's like what? How far can they really take it? So then how far do you want to take it? You're engaging with the enemy, essentially, trying to create favorable laws and trying to prevent them from having their laws. It's the age-old story. What can we do? I don't know. It's just, you know, I I think it's dangerous when I see people out there, uh, like, trying to, to, to talk to these regulators about Bitcoin mining and energy use and all this other stuff. On the one hand, you say, well, we should be able to like defend these lines. We should be able to say all these things and, you know, support our whatever. But on the other hand, you're also giving a, a lot of the battlefield, which is what we're talking about. You know, you go out there and you, you know, you agree to some of these things. You agree to the narrative. It's it, you have to be careful to understand, like, what part of it are you agreeing to? 
what are you happy and what are you celebrating with these laws that are being passed? That's, I guess, what I'm really getting to. Because at the fundamental point of Bitcoin is that we're doing something different here. And a lot of the laws that they try to like foist upon us with this stuff are either antiquated, horribly inadequate, or totally un irrelevant. So yeah, they, they want to have laws to prevent people from having a business, uh, you know, with computers making guesses, and they want to, you know, prevent those businesses from, you know, sharing that data with other businesses, like, it, like get out of here with that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that... Um... So isn't the issue, really, you don't want to acknowledge... You don't want to say, look, listen, we think that the government has the right to dictate what people can and can't do that's completely outside the scope of defending other people's rights when they appear to be violated. Uh, but to to write, to work against the passage of laws that restrict people from doing things that the government shouldn't restrict people from can't be deemed entirely a waste of energy, right? Like, but, uh, I shouldn't say waste of energy because there's the equivocation, a waste of our efforts. Right. Like to the extent that we we don't need a law that says, yes, you're permitted to mine Bitcoin, but we do need to get rid of laws that say you're not permitted to use your computers for this, that or the other that is not harmful to anybody else. Yeah, I realize I'm not really making a cohesive point. I'm kind of throwing a few things that I'm feeling up and it's not really stringing together to some kind of point where we can go, oh, yeah, but. These are no, things no, that no. And your point I'm feeling is very instinctively about this process. Your point is very cohesive, Ant, and and very well said. And I think it cuts to the to the core of of the of the issue um, very very succinctly. Um, and it's true, though. But you know, our political process, we are often divorced from our political process you know we as citizens think things should go certain ways there's always 50 percent of the population is is always going to be well not 50 percent, but a majority of a, a portion of the population is always going to be upset with whatever happens in politics and the old adage is you know if everybody walking out of um of a negotiation is upset it's probably a pretty good deal because that means everybody has compromised. Unfortunately, um, you know, Bitcoin, because of its programmatic nature, because it's basically math, it's just really hard to compromise with this thing because it's it's already truth. It's already uh, uncompromisable. And it, it already is. Um, I don't want to say it's perfect because it's not, but it's as near to something that we've that humans have been able to create that is um, a perfect protocol that we've gotten to so far. And so politics oftentimes is way behind uh, technology and is way behind where we have gotten to um, uh, with technology and they try to catch up and you know it, this is a this is an age-old thing I'm sure that when 
when electricity was introduced into uh, into New York City by uh, Edison and Tesla, I am sure that there was a lot of legislation that went on um, surrounding that. I I can't I, you know I'm, I haven't done the research to look at it, but I'm sure there was tons of legislation about uh, having electricity go into people's into people's homes, both good and bad. And eventually, we ended up um, you know where we are today, where you know, you are allowed to have electricity coming in and out of your home. Can you guys hear me okay? Yep. Cool. Should a baker that breaks bread all morning be allowed to sell all of his bread or should he be forced to bury 30% of it? Energy stability requires excess production to maintain baseload. This goes unused outside of extreme conditions. Bitcoin mining provides a consumer for this unused portion of energy production, which can be automated to turn off or on depending on the demands of the grid. This offers the producers of energy fair compensation for their labor and expenditures. This increases revenue and lowers the cost of lowers the cost to the rest of the consumers of the energy. Bitcoin miners use the excess energy. It is not profitable to do so otherwise. Oh, it's profitable for Warren Buffett and uh, and Duke Energy and all of the other uh, all of the other entities that are in the business of providing that uh, that excess uh, power when it's needed. Yeah, but That's not a... the flare stuff. The flare stuff is literally like the incentives don't align for you to like. They can't even process it out there. You know, they're there to 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 collect fish, not the extra stuff. And that's what they're there for. And so you're out there at the hole and you're you're pulling up, you know, the oil and you get this gas that you don't need, that you can't process right there. You're not there for that. That's not what you were hired to drill for. So, you know, it's wasted. And and that is. Yeah, I mean, that that's the whole point right there. Yeah, I mean, I, I just love take the ride right there. I mean, that's what we should be focusing on is just the facts on the ground of how this technology actually improves things. Um, so reiterating those points over and over again, I don't think it's a waste of time to do that for legislators because it's the truth. We have the truth on our side. This is a very beneficial technology for our energy industry. Um, and that was actually one of the house bills that was approved. It provided a tax incentive for utilizing gas that would otherwise be flared. Uh, kind of what, what Ant was just saying um, and I don't think that's passed, really, if there isn't advocates on the ground educating these policymakers and legislators. So um, I do think it's important. And I think what Take the Ride just did is paramount, uh, just reiterating those points over and over and over again uh, for them to understand. Because if you look at technological revolutions over, um, you know, history, like somebody brought up electricity, um, whenever you have these technological revolutions, it's you need um, they basically jump forward, right? You have these technologies that do this in, uh, amazing things. They create this enormous wealth creating potential that come about and um, the, the existing frameworks and the institutions and the laws, they can't handle that growth with these new technologies. It, they're unsuited for these new technologies. And so it requires education and time uh, to get these laws in place. Um, for them to kind of uh, accept these technologies and allow them to flourish 
but that's a, that can be a painful transition. And I think that transition can be ease through education and, and advocates on the ground talking to them. So it's just kind of the nature of the beast. You can hate the laws. You can say, oh, like we shouldn't have laws that dictate how we run computers and all this stuff, but they're going to do that anyway. And so you might as well educate them so they don't pass bad laws. Um, but let's go to BJ because uh, you've been uh, sitting quietly and um, I love to hear your thoughts on some of this stuff. And um, yeah, what's up, man? How you doing? Good morning. Hey, brother. I'm uh, blessed with trying to navigate uh, New York traffic in an 18 wheeler. And this is uh, very frustrating. Uh, anyways, the, um, on the issue of, you know, not only just time and government, government and mining, I don't know, this is just like the perfect day. For the past several months, I've been trying to get some attention from people who I'm friendly with in uh, government, uh, supporters that I and uh, my kind have. And um, I have actually need to get somebody, a company that, that knows mining really well because there is interest. And I used the argument of excess supply, which is an issue that we deal with not only in Canada, but other places. So we're, these contacts and myself are kind of working uh, on a plan on how to broach this with legislators and how to suggest bleeding off excess supply for the purpose of Bitcoin mining. Because as much as I understand the anti-government sentiment, unfortunately, the government's not going, going anywhere. So it's in our best interest to figure out a way to get them hooked on mining as well. So they're... They're receptive and they're listening to me right now, and I'm trying to to get all of these parties uh, parties talking. And I think if we do that, um, we're looking at from right now to gaining interest to wanting to implement just a test bed uh, to do an excess supply program. Uh, we're looking at maybe three to five years just to test it, just to start. That's how slow. Uh, government works. So, I mean, we have all the time in the world in the Bitcoin space. We're going to be well ahead of government. Technology always is. But, um, and I understand, Ant, I understand your sentiment, but at the same time, why not try to figure out a way that what whatever allies we have in government to bring them on board and advocate on Bitcoin's behalf internally? At least that's what I'm trying to do. So, Foss, I see you're there. I'm, I'm going to have to talk to you a little bit later about this. Because uh, this is actually serious, and we need um, we need a company that can really uh, step up to the plate and communicate to the government effectively on this issue. Yeah, I don't want to jump ahead of Wicked, but this point is ties in directly to what you're saying. So forgive me, Wicked, but I'll be brief. Uh, there's just, I mean, I, I understand, you know, like I don't want to get it twisted. I understand the roles of the government, and I understand that they're not going away right now. Uh, Bitcoin's different. There's a couple of problems here. One is this last mile that we delegate to these people who are speaking to the government, literally on our behalf. Bitcoin is so massive and unique with so many different facets that we've already described how people come to it and approach it from different angles and different lenses. A lot of the people here don't agree with me in the way that I believe about Bitcoin. And it can be dangerous. I mean, yeah, you can say, well, you're sitting on the sideline. Eh? You're not like getting your points up to these politicians. Well, so the first part, the first problem being that 
some of these people may not directly speak for you, especially in the ESG thing. That's what it is for me. You've got these people up there talking to governments, allegedly trying to like, you know, get them to support Bitcoin narratives. But the narrative is, has been framed around ESG. And again, giving up the battlefield. And these people don't speak for me. And so it's dangerous. The second thing that, you know, has to be recognized is that at the end of the day, none of that even matters. These, the seven serpents will literally kill you to reach their goals. That is all they care about is their goals. This thing, they're operating on a different timeline than us. And they are like, you know, able to pull their levers at, at their will whenever they want. They can literally drag you out into the street in the middle of the night. So you're dancing with the enemy here. And Bitcoin already provides the ways out. I agree. I hear you 100%. I mean, look, everything in life is trade-offs. Um, I'm, but at the same time, there's also the persuasion benefit. So when I'm trying to talk to normies on the radio or in our families and friends and trying to orange pill them on Bitcoin, it becomes a lot easier when I say, well, the government mines Bitcoin. Oh, you know what I mean? Like, I know we don't think that way, but unfortunately, the vast majority of people, at least in my life, think that way. And that sort of legitimacy would help uh, grow the network as far as, you know, at least from my perspective. I could be wrong, but I get it, man. Believe me, listen, I have no love of government. You know, as you all saw, I was, I and many others were the victim of a tyrannical government for the first time in a long time in Canada. That's why I want to infect them. They always use political entryism against us. We call them shitcoins. Well, why don't we use political entryism as a weapon against them to onboard as many people as possible? But who knows? Who knows? So the one thing I wanted to say on this topic is, you know, I, mean, I think that we're worrying about these things which will just naturally play out over time. Right. And I know like as Americans and as Canadians, you know, we want our governments to be favorable, to have favorable laws towards Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin in general. But the truth is that even if they didn't and they went full on, you know, attack mode on Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin would just thrive in other places where they didn't. Right. I mean, that's the thing about a global permissionless network is that it just finds the places that are most friendly towards it. And it will thrive there. So, you know, the United States can do all they want to try to prevent Bitcoin mining within their borders. But first of all, it's not going to stop, you know, home miners who are just going to give them the middle finger and keep doing it anyways. And, you know, all the industrial miners are just going to move elsewhere. Right. So I don't know. I'm not too worried about it. I know, like, you know, again, you know, especially if you're involved in one of these mining companies, you know, in the United States or in Canada, you know, obviously just for self-preservation and for your own employment, you know, you, know, you want the, <laughs> the laws to be favorable. But, you know, just as a Bitcoiner, right, as a world, you know, citizen Bitcoiner, um, fuck it. Like, they can do whatever the fuck they want because Bitcoin is just going to keep ticking along, man.
Sorry, guys, I'm just loading my truck. Yeah, BJ, um, you might want to talk with SAS Mining a little bit. Um, they could maybe help you. I, I know I've been with William, uh, the CEO in DC, talking to policymakers, and he's very well spoken, uh, you know, good voice for Bitcoin mining. Uh, so maybe he would be a good person to connect with as well. He should be on maybe later today on the show. Let's uh, let's pivot a little bit uh, from the mining. There's an other news in uh, there's a settlement with the SEC of uh, the Wahai brothers caught insider trading at Coinbase. Um, basically, they were front running these uh, crypto assets that were sold on the exchange. Whenever they were listed, they would kind of front run them, and they made uh, about a million dollars or so, or two million dollars uh, front running, and they were just sentenced. Uh, um, you know, I wrote a piece a while ago, kind of analyzing all of these altcoins that get listed, these shit coins that get listed on Coinbase, these other centralized exchanges. You can kind of look at the price action um, and just see this insider exchange dump that occurs whenever these coins get listed. There's a big run up in the beginning, and then they all drop uh, 80, 90 percent, and most of them never ever recover. And that's the whole point of these altcoins is basically to enrich the insiders. Um, and this, if on this case, it was actually the insiders in Coinbase that were front running them um, because there's always information that gets leaked whenever these things get listed. I mean, they're centralized coins. Um, they get paid to, they pay to get listed on these exchanges. Um, obviously, internally, it's known when, when these things get listed and then the price runs up. And in this case, they were charged. And so um, this is just another example of uh, you know, why Bitcoin is different. Bitcoin doesn't have any kind of founding team. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it, it was an interesting settlement, um, kind of the first case. I think we'll probably see more cases like this come about in the future. Uh, but yeah, any, any thoughts about this? What, what was the settlement, Sam? Are they serving any time, just paying a small fine? Like, Is there a discouragement in, in the precedent set here for doing this again, or did their crime pay? Sounds like they, uh, they're paying, um, they basically agree that they uh, did do the insider training and that they're banned from kind of working in the industry anymore. Um, and they were sentenced to two years in prison. So, well, okay, that's pretty significant. Uh, you know, it is, I, maybe it's just, it's this whole point around there's been so much lack of justice um, in terms of what's gone on because there's been so much and this isn't just limited to Coinbase, right? This is, in the whole crypto casino space, there's been tremendous amounts of price manipulation, fooling of naive investors, you know, making people think that they were investing when really they were just, um, they're being manipulated and in, in buying a nothing, right? And like most of these uh, ICOs of these tokens never produced a product, never ran anything other than had price speculation on them uh, that, that was designed to be a pump and dump. So it's a, it's a nice precedent. It's 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 not that much way too late, but I do think that um, just hearing it as news from you right now, it's encouraging to hear that some some people who were able to take advantage of of this inside information or and knew knew what they were doing here have been punished. You know, the people who actually issued these securities, I guess, not not so much. Uh, not yet, at least. So it's a long, 
just this is a long, slow process. It can be frustrating, but at least this is a step in the right direction. Joe, Joe doesn't. Joe doesn't like what I've said again. Joe, have you ever liked anything of what I said? I like most of what you said, to be honest. But I don't like. Uh, <laughs> I don't like the the SEC's uh, approach on this. I think it is a once again an unmitigated disaster. Uh, they should have actually moved forward with precedent, and uh, these guys got off with with nothing. Uh, well, kind of a, yeah, a joke. Can you uh, can you go into detail, Joe? Share us your expertise. Yeah. No. I mean, listen. They brought an action. Uh, their action could have served as great precedent. Um, they got gun shy, which is typically the case. They didn't want to have to fight a tough battle. And uh, they entered into a slap on the wrist that really has very little teeth. And by the way, um, you know, the, the phrase was used that this sets great precedent. I don't think it sets any precedent. That's the whole nature of a settlement. Without court orders, without some actual findings by the court, without, you know, it would have been great that these nine or so, I can't remember the exact number offhand, but the, the nine or so tokens were, we'd have a clear ruling from the court. These are investment contracts. Uh, these are something that you know should be treated like securities. We don't. We've got a settlement. Got a slap on the wrist. Got people pay the speeding ticket, and they're on their way to do the next scam. Obviously, they can't work in the industry. Obviously, that's you know problematic. But you know, people next near them will, and they'll be connected, and there'll be a ways to navigate around it, and on to the next one, rinse and repeat. Cost of doing business. So you think the settlement just occurred because the SEC like still doesn't want to provide any clarity around these, uh, you know, whatever whether these digital assets are securities or not? They've provided it's, clarity. It's it's clear since 2016. I've written memos about this. I've given legal guidance about this. It's not it's not up for debate. These things are, uh, you yeah. know, very, very clear, very clear investment contracts. They have the characteristics of investment contract. This is not an issue of clarity. It's an issue of enforcement. When you bring a suit. You should stick to it, right? You should go for the jugular. Send send mm-hmm. a clear message with a court finding. Don't settle, you know, months, not even a year, I think it was, since they brought the suit. And, and don't do it in a discriminate way where, like, you're going to go after little weak hands and players who can't defend themselves and force settlements and then say, rah, rah, we did a great job. We got a, a settlement. Go after big players. So, go after the big so Joe. Just for for clarity, and maybe Sam can provide it, but like, what were these individuals charged with, and what did they plead? Like, they're going to prison, so they've obviously had to plead guilty. No, no, something. no. We we don't know that. There's two cases. There's a DOJ action, and there's an SEC one. So you know, I, as far as I know, unless something changed in the last, did the DOJ resolve their case? Was the I thought it was the, Sam saying there's prison involved. So that's I, I just said uh, you know one of them was sent. I thought two it was years the SEC. And convicted of two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Was so, that yeah, today? I think there's two. Uh, this yeah. was earlier this month. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, but so you're the, right. the SEC separate. Yeah. Yeah. The SEC suit is what I was referring to. Okay. Obviously, DOJ, but the DOJ actions, that's a wire, right? You know, that's a wire fraud action, right? That's, that's, you know, that's a sort of different issue than uh, the, the securities thing. I, I, I was speaking, you know, just to be clear. I'm speaking about the SEC and the SEC's actions, okay, which, you know, in my view are, are you know, with all due respect to those professionals working in the SEC, um, they really are not uh, <laughs> robust enough for my my liking. And you said go after the big dogs, Joe. Are you referring to, you know, the, the VC firms, the giant VC firms? We don't have to name names. Um, yeah, I can't go that far in my uh, yeah, 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 yeah. remarks. Okay. So I got gotcha. you. <laughs> 
Well, you know, I think it's that, very, it's very, all, yeah. all I will say is this, okay? In financial crimes, okay, this is just a, a hallmark of financial, not financial crimes, excuse me, financial enforcement. In financial enforcement, financial services enforcement, civil enforcement, right, it is designed to go after those who profit most. That's how the laws are supposed to work. They're supposed to go after those who have the windfall. Those are the ones who face the most scrutiny and enforcement actions. Okay, this is literally how they design some of the branch offices. They say where who's really benefiting from the system. And in this case, okay, whether it's, you know, Kim Kardashian or some of the other actions they filed, it seems like they go after the easy wins. By the way, they still haven't filed against Coinbase yet. We have until September. Well, Joe, do they have the resources to actually fight them if they go after the big dogs? Sorry, can you say that again? I said, do they have the resources to fight them if they go after the big dogs? Of course. I mean, I, I, listen, I, now whether whether they, uh, I guess when you, when you say fight them, I mean, you have to pick and choose, right? You have to decide you know, with limited resources and staffing who who's the real targets. Um, so that's why like suits like this, they kind of, you know, diminish that. Wicked, you know they have the money printer on their side, right? They pretty much have unlimited resources to a certain extent. I don't know. I mean, the SEC's budget has been been cut repeatedly, and that's why Gensler keeps having to lobby for more funding. Yeah, but Joe, I mean, you know, you know better than anybody on stage. Going up against the uh, going up against the state is um, is pretty deep pockets to to be fighting. Yeah, I mean, we've won suits against the SEC. Um, you know, you're, you, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I actually think in the Ripple case, they're kind of outmatched, to be honest. I mean, they have, they're going against it's an all-star legal team. Um, the private industry has got a call, and I got to jump in a second. The private industry has a lot of resources to bear. So, I mean, if they can't even win against Ripple, then how are they going to go after Coinbase or Ethereum or, you know, some of these other entities that are, I mean, probably more powerful than Ripple. I mean, fucking Ripple, come on. Yeah, Ripple's got, you know, billions of dollars at their disposal. Just keep in mind. Right. So does Coinbase and Ethereum. Speaking of Ripple, um, hasn't isn't that isn't a decision on that kind of overdue at this point? That's the whole point. If they lose this one. <laughs> I feel like people are overlooking that case. I think uh, maybe, you know, Joe would probably know better than me, but I feel like it's been going on for so long that people kind of forgotten about it. It's always been an ongoing uh, case in the background, but it could have uh, kind of significant implications uh, for the crypto industry as a whole. Um, Ripple versus the SEC, it's been going on for years. Um, and so I don't know, Joe, did, I, I think there was like a recent ruling or something uh, that the SEC was trying to not make public and they lost that. And the judge said that they have to reveal it now. Um, I don't know if you have any details about that, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I'm right in the middle of something. Sorry about that. No, oh, OK, that's fine. Um, 
But uh, yeah, from my from my understanding, uh, the SEC was trying very hard to not have these documents revealed or made public, and they basically, I think, will provide clarity in terms of what they think is a security and not a security, and they didn't want the stuff to be made public. Uh, but the the judge said they have to reveal it. So uh, you know that's the last update that I've had. I think that was in the last week or so. But I think the Ripple versus SEC case. Um, it's something to keep an eye on and not, not forget about because like Joe said, they, they have a ton of money, you know, how that money was made. We can, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of uh, criticism around that, but, uh, they're throwing it into this legal battle, everything they got. Uh, so we'll see what ripple can do. Um, but you know, I think it's, it could have really, really big implications, uh, more broadly. I want to, uh, Welcome, Ninja, to the stage. You haven't really spoken yet, but um, good morning, man. Uh, if you have anything to say or any other topics you want to discuss. Or just chill. Wicked, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, as like, just as a proxy. So, I mean, I, you know, I really don't pay much attention to shit coins these days, right? You see things here and there on Twitter, just on your For You feed, unfortunately, that get you going but um as a proxy you know i do have like a couple friends who are into shit coins still i've orange built them to the point where they have most of their allocations to bitcoin but they still think that they can try their hand on the shitcoin casino and maybe get a few extra stats that way and i haven't convinced them to stop fucking around there but i do have one friend who like you know keeps an ear close to crypto shit and uh and he just texted me not too long ago saying he's putting a decent amount into ripple so i don't know <laughs> just as a proxy i'm just like oh man what the fuck's happening with ripple now this motherfucker's been convinced yeah. to place a sizable bet on it so i don't know man well yeah. i think there is clarity and the clarity is bitcoin uh when it comes to all this regulatory stuff all this drama uh every single time it made clear that Bitcoin's different. Uh, Bitcoin doesn't have an issuer. Bitcoin's been deemed a commodity. Um, Bitcoin truly leaders, leaderless, decentralized, you know, all those things we talk about all the time. It just doesn't have any of these regulatory risks or uncertainties that every single other one of these cryptocurrencies has to deal with. Um, and that's what makes it different. And I think Tramel Venture Partners put out a report recently that looked into the amount of investment in Bitcoin versus the broader cryptocurrency industry. And really what it showed was there's a huge disconnect in terms of the amount of venture dollars that have been invested and the amount of deals that happen between Bitcoin specifically and the broader crypto. I mean, we're talking like in 2022, there was about 2% of the deal count was towards Bitcoin only companies. And there was 1.3% of the venture dollars invested. And that's despite the Bitcoin, you know, market cap dominance, dominance being above 40%. I mean, there's a huge disconnect there. And the good news is that deal activity, um, that kind of trend is shifting. So in, in the deals for crypto venture more broadly in 2022, it was basically flat. So everything got wiped out. There's a bunch of scams revealed. People started to wisen up a little bit about, oh, these things are centralized garbage. Um, we don't want to do these deals. Well, the Bitcoin venture deals in 2022 were up 50%. And so the signals coming through the noise where these Bitcoin specific companies, Bitcoin only companies that are taking this long view to support the only cryptocurrency that has any real value proposition, 
uh, we're seeing that shift um, in 2022 in the bear market. And that's kind of what I think about when I see any of these regulatory developments um, is that it's actually just kind of points people towards the signal. And, and to me, that's you know obviously Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I agree that, you know, that that's that kind of gives you the signals, those regulations, but ultimately, you know, what they depend on. Right. The thing that actually matters is that the projects are decentralized <laughs> that you invest in. And obviously, Bitcoin is the only one that really, I think, you know, is decentralized. So, like, if your shit's centralized, then it's probably going to be deemed a security eventually once they get their you know regulations in order and so ultimately you know that's what matters most is that like you're 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 adopting or investing in a money that is decentralized because everything else is just a fucking company issuing their own tokens yeah like the actual idea that it could be sec versus ripple proves that it's not decentralized. (laughs) like if it was sec versus bitcoin you know like who would show up in the court (laughs) nobody um Tomer, what's up? Hey, yeah, I just wanted to t- toss in a little something about what you you were just saying, Sam. Right, that we're seeing investment in Bitcoin-related companies that are overwhelmingly Bitcoin only, and I think that that is what the bear market leads to. It leads to a shakeout of the unsustainable stuff that was able to survive in frothy times uh, when people didn't know what was going on and they were just you know investing in the space as opposed to investing in businesses that they've done any due diligence on and and it's not a quick buck it's not a quick route to an ipo it's building something of substance we're seeing a lot of that happening on bitcoin we're seeing lots of bitcoin only companies announcing funding rounds which is encouraging we're seeing investments in bitcoin by companies we're seeing investments in bitcoin mining by companies um and and we're also seeing um a lot of research getting done into how to use Bitcoin more efficiently and renewed interest in that. So there's like all these new layer two scaling solutions or ideas around it that are getting quite a bit of attention and, and good discussion. So as much as, you know, we're, we're in the, a lot, we're well into a bear market. It's actually that that serves to show what's strong enough to survive through the bear markets. And it's really encouraging when you actually look at it in that perspective. And you got your hand up? Yeah, I was just going to say, consider yourselves lucky that uh, in this cycle, you haven't really had to deal with the XRP army that much, uh, but they were super obnoxious. You've had to deal with like the NFTers and now these Ordinals crew, but you know, like I used to get into it with the XRP army back in the last bear market. And, you know, it's, it's pretty funny because I would keep getting back to how they're, how centralized they are. Cause they would tell me, oh, how decentralized XRP is. And first of all, they were ripple and then they changed to XRP. So it was like this big, you know, media push that they had put out that they didn't, you know, they even would like try to like flame you on Twitter. If you tried to like make the correlation that it was that XRP was just ripple, you know? So, I mean, even something simple like that they would they would get all up in your dms and like get all mad at you and like whatever well one thing that people don't know about ripple is that part of the way that that system works is when you put money into a wallet 
it keeps like a reserve, like 20 tokens or however many ripple it's going to keep, which is meaningless, really. It's not that much money, but <clears throat> it's not even money. But what happens is if you try to, you know, send out of your ripple wallet, they're going to keep that 20 like forever, like locked in there forever. Right. So I started going in on these guys because back then they had this meme that was going around that Ripple was going to be $589, which is fucking ludicrous on its face, right? But at the same time, that was their message. So I'm going in on them and I'm like, dude, like, because I wanted them to know how centralized this piece of shit is, you know? And so they're like, I was saying, yeah, well, like 20 Ripple stuck in your wallet. Like if you actually get to 589, like that's going to be like 11 grand like stuck and you can't do anything about it. Oh, no, 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 no. Haven't you been listening to Brad and those guys? They're just going to change it. It's going to be fine. Like when it gets to that point, it's going to be changed and no problem. And I, I mean, I used to just have such fun with those guys. Y'all are lucky you don't have to deal with them anymore though, really. Probably a good time for some announcements here. Uh, this is uh, Cafe Bitcoin. This is the number one place for to hear your Bitcoin daily news every weekday. Uh, this is brought by Swamp Bitcoin, a Bitcoin financial services company. Um, we put on a conference uh, every year. So uh, we do the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. Um, it's out in Santa Monica. It's beautiful. We're doing that October 5th and 6th this year. Um, it was my one of my favorite conferences last year. Like I, I know I'm biased, but I had a fantastic time. So um, we have a lot of great speakers. It's just a little bit different than other Bitcoin conferences. It's got a different vibe. Um, I think nowadays getting in person with people is more and more important. Um, so go check it out. It's at PacificBitcoin.com um, and uh, join over. 1300 other bitcoiners that are set to attend and go watch some great talks so check it out get the tickets uh we'll be there toma will be there um it'll be a great time um so just kind of pivoting a little bit here um one of the things that we've seen since really post ftx is a uh, diminished liquidity in in the bitcoin ecosystem and we saw that again um when Bitcoin's trading price in Australia had a significant drop after its Australian Binance branch was closed. And you saw the price of uh, Bitcoin in Australian dollars really widen, but, but basically like 21% off of what the other uh, trading exchange exchanges were uh, trading at at the time. And so you had this huge spread. Now, I bet this spread kind of closed off, but it really just shows that the liquidity continues to get drained. And I think that's why you see a lot of volatility in the price of Bitcoin, um, you saw it kind of shoot up thousands of percentage or thousands of uh, uh, dollars in these short moves, just like whenever there's a headline about the debt shoots up to 28K, now it shoots back down to 27K. Um, and so you're basically having a liquid market. And so I was wondering if anybody had any thoughts around that um, in terms of how we can expect the price to kind of move in this new, more illiquid environment. Um, whether it's Tomer or Ant or anyone else. That's, uh, I'm, I'm going to weigh in, but uh, very, very cautiously. I, mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. The less liquidity is, the less liquidity there is, the more that smaller quantities of money moving in and out affect the price. 
Um, there's just there's just less of it there. It does seem, although it's hard to be certain of it, that what we've basically seen is a lot of the Bitcoin finding its way into self custody as opposed to being left on exchanges, which isn't a certainty that people don't plan to sell it, but it's it's certainly an indication that people will have to take time to move it back into exchanges to sell it if there's if there's demand. So it 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 shows that there's more demand to hold than there is demand to sell. And we're starting to see more conviction coming in from a handful of bigger players like them. Rather than seeing institutional selling, we're seeing more, albeit small, institutional buying, like Tether's announcement from the other week that they're they're going to take a fifteen up to fifteen percent of their profits, which are substantial, and put those into Bitcoin. And you know they're investing in other Bitcoin infrastructure with more of their other assets. So there there's more money that continues to flow in. And then of course we're going to have a halving in a year's time, which also depletes the liquidity of Bitcoin that's being sold because it depletes the liquidity of Bitcoin being issued at cost to miners. Um, so, you know, all all things look like that number ought to go up and potentially quite substantially given given these constraints. But I wouldn't hold out on timing or make a prediction as to exactly how much because I don't like to do that. Yeah, I think I think uh, other firms will see this as an opportunity as well um, to kind of step in and provide that liquidity, whether it's other market makers or exchanges. Um, you know, I know that there's been various traditional financial firms that are starting to build their own internal crypto exchanges and custody platforms, whether it's Nomura, uh, Charles Schwab, Standard Charter. Uh, we had BNY Mellon come out last year. Um, Fidelity, obviously, is a, is a major one as well. And so I think, uh, you know, some of these more traditional legacy financial institutions uh, will also see this as an opportunity in the wake of, you know, FTX and some of these shady offshore exchanges um, kind of losing market share. I guess that'll be healthy from a resiliency standpoint for the broader industry. But, um, you know, right now we're just in this kind of transition period where we are more liquid. And so just expect the more volatility. Um, I think that's that's fair. Right now, Bitcoin is uh, running into some selling pressure. A lot of people, are, you know, the jobs report came out this morning. It was actually stronger when this like good economic data is, is bad news for, for asset prices regime right now. <laughs> so uh, the job data came in stronger than people think. And that's making people believe that the Fed won't pause in its June FOMC meeting. And so we're seeing kind of assets um, like equities and like Bitcoin start to sell off. Um, this was in the wake of some comments from various uh, Federal Reserve presidents like Loretta Mester, um, who said, you know, I would see more of a compelling case for bringing the rates up uh, and then holding it for a while um, until 
we, you get less uncertainty about where the economy is going. You also had comments from Christopher Waller. Um, Christopher Waller is, is kind of like Powell's right-hand man. And so whenever he speaks, it's worth noting what he's saying because he's been a really good signal um, in terms of the direction of Fed policy. Um, and he, he basically said, you know, we want to look at the incoming data uh, for the next three weeks. Um, but he doesn't think that, you know, we should pause anytime soon. Um, he doesn't res- support stopping rate hikes unless they get clear evidence that inflation is moving down towards a 2% target. Um, and so, you know, I think when you look at the messaging, really people are waiting for these green shoots. Like, when's the Fed going to pause? And you had the resolution of the debt ceiling, but it's still kind of uncertainty whether that's going to get passed. Um, and so right now we're seeing Bitcoin start to sell off a little bit more in this more uncertain environment, uh, whether the Fed's going to start cutting or not, you know, pausing or whether or not this debt ceiling is actually going to get voted through or not. Um, you know, a lot of these assets are getting a little shaky and, and Bitcoin more broadly is still viewed as a risk asset. We, I think we all know that um, that's not necessarily the case, uh, but that's still how the broader market views it. So in that more illiquid environment that we just mentioned, uh, we, we get these big price swings in, in these headlines when they come through. So um, anybody have thoughts around the current price action around Bitcoin? I think I started off the show referring to that, and it's just all about low time preference. I mean, ultimately, I don't know. I just don't think it matters ultimately. And it's going to be a relief when I no longer have to, you know, even think about the mental gymnastics about what these people are saying and what impact it has. And and, and really, that's what I'm waiting for. Um, I, I'm waiting for, for, for their noise to become irrelevant. Um, in, in my mind, it has already... Uh, become much more irrelevant than it was several years ago. Um, even though I know that, you know, in the real world that surrounds uh, this this kind of echo chamber that I live in, um, it does have an effect on things. But, you know, slowly uh, over time and and with low time preference, we're getting away from that. We're getting away from that system that is controlled by just a few individuals who who really, you know, it's just, I was talking to somebody about it today, you know, it's like at, at, at Davos, you know, the, the world economic forum, uh, sideshow 200,000 private jet flights in and out of Davos for that week. I mean, who are these people to tell me what I can do or not do with energy when they are the most hypocritical, bunch of individuals of all time. I mean, the statism uh, in in this in 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 our system, in our society just drives me crazy. Unfortunately, I, I'm not sure my time preference is so low that I'm not sure that I'm going to be around um, when when this noise just becomes completely irrelevant. And and actually, to be honest with you, I, I hope that I'm not, because that will mean that there will have been an, an orderly um, an orderly change and an orderly march towards uh, something something better. I, I would rather there was an orderly march, and, and my children and my grandchildren will will benefit from it probably uh, more than than I will. But at the same time, I really wish that it would just 
happen and that I could experience, you know, that that place. So I, I don't know that price action. Um, I mean, I know it's meaningful, but, you know, the other thing is, is we're in this range. We've basically been, you know, Bitcoin broke out of the below 20K range. When was that in December? And then it kind of, you know, it spiked. It got all the way up to 31K. And now it's just kind of been floating around in this in this range in between basically, I'm going to say around 26 to 28,000. It's just been kind of moving up and down in this range for, for months. And it's just, this is this low time frame, kind of boring. Um, you just got to sit and uh, kind of watch it existence that I've, that I've been in for the last uh, three or four months. Yeah, people don't really want to know what I think on this. I, and you shouldn't follow what I say anyway. Uh, following other people, especially with your financial uh, stuff, probably going to get you wrecked. A good recipe to get wrecked. I believe in cycles still. In my mind, you know, yes, we've started the fourth leg. Everybody wants this thing to start banging. It's been a long bear market. All of that. Unfortunately, again, even though I look at data every single day and I do PA and all that, like I make my decisions based on instinct and like feeling mostly, which is probably bad. So again, don't do what I do. But in my mind, and again, past performance does not indicate future performance, but it just feels like we still need another capitulation. Like we haven't had that like real event where we flush out these posers. And we get to the new floor of hardcore hodlers. Like, I just feel like we haven't really hit that part yet. If we don't do it, then great. And if we just kind of slow chop up and down up to the having, and, you know, we can somehow get to the having around like 30, 30,000, 38,000, just according to like TA stuff from the past, which doesn't fucking matter because we're looking in the future. It's like, yeah, that would be awesome. But at the same time, if I know Bitcoin, it feels like there's going to be like another big drop that makes everybody fucking question where they stand. And you're going to see even more people leave. And there's going to be people trying to take advantage of Bitcoin while it's down. All of that. And you're going to have to question it again. That's, you know, again, that's just my take and what I'm doing. I wouldn't listen to me at all. Yeah, I think long-term thinking is always important, and I still believe in cycles as well. And I think when you look back, like if you have like a three to five-year time frame of your investment, I think around these areas you're going to be really happy with, um, and not get caught up in these short-term price movements. Especially when you look at like how it reacts to things like the debt ceiling, um, you know, potential default, and all of this stuff. Um, but we all know what the long-term trend is, is that they got to keep spending, right? Given the debt levels in the system. And so even if they pass it and say, hey, we're going to kick the can up the road, we're going to raise the debt ceiling, we're going to um, you know, push this thing forward, it doesn't change the spending really. You know, it just, it just allows them to keep spending more. That's going to keep building up. And all of that is the, really about the long-term value proposition of holding a hard asset like Bitcoin. Uh, when you have these these politicians that just keep spending and spending and spending. And so, um, you know, 
I think it's always important to keep a long, um, long-term mindset when investing in Bitcoin, especially when it's given its volatility. And so, yeah, these short price movements don't matter, but you know, a lot of people um, really focus on them, especially if they're new to Bitcoin. And so, it's 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 a reiteration of these these low time preference thinking is so important to being successful in investing in general, but specifically really volatile assets like like Bitcoin. But when you zoom out, you can see that the volatility only tracks one way. Um, and so always think about the long-term trends and how Bitcoin has responded to those long-term trends. Uh, I think those are really important lessons. Tomer, you always get me uh, thinking about the long-term, man. I-, I was wondering if maybe you could share a little bit about uh, what you've been writing about, because I know you always have uh, like 15 open pieces that you're working on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm trying to remember um, some of the stuff that, because I've just, uh, I've been in a whirlwind of different articles. I, I think I mentioned quickly the other day that I, I've, I've been writing one that I'm actually going to publish in this next upcoming issue of the of the publication we put out to the Swan Private members called Swan Private Insight. And it's called The Substance of Bitcoin. And there's kind of, there's a, a bit of a famous uh, post from Satoshi that he he put into a discussion on um, Bitcoin talk, the, the original forum where people were talking about Bitcoin, where he said, you know, imagine if you will, kind of a magical substance that uh, was gray and not really useful for anything but it had this one magical ability that it could be transported over a communication network anywhere. How would that do in becoming money? Obviously he was talking, he was doing this thought experiment around Bitcoin. And over the years, I've, I've thought a little bit about that and I've thought about a bunch of these other traits. And so I, I'm trying to frame Bitcoin as this um, substance. Like, and if you look at Bitcoin as a, the substance what does it do that no other substance in the world can do and it turns out it has like at least five of these magical properties besides the first one which he described which is being teleportable like what what you know you can obviously teleport bitcoin from one location to another um that, that being moving it over a telecommunication network port it over telecommunication network so you can do that and there's there's a bunch of these other characteristics which make it really really suitable as money uh, just as you know, one other example of this magical ability is like it's like Thor's hammer, you know, that only Thor can move because it belongs to him and nobody else can lift it. Right? Your, your little piece of Bitcoin cannot be moved by anybody, no matter how strong they are. Um, only you can move it, and so it can be teleported, but only by the person who who it belongs to, and it retains a memory of its entire history in itself. Imagine some substance that you could change its shape. And it would be in the shape that you changed it to, but it was, it remembered the history of all of its shapes beforehand and you can track the history of that. That one may be a little bit less clear in terms of its utility, but I've gone in and tried to explore all these different areas. And I think what's useful about these things is we're always, because it's such a new thing, we're trying to understand how it works. And so so metaphor is really powerful because we understand how other things work. And so this metaphor of this substance which happens to have some unique attributes that no other substance had before, but we could describe how they might work is um, it, it's turning out to be an interesting and fun article to write. And uh, I'll get it up on our blog within a, within a month or so for sure. 
um, so that people can read it. It also is, I, I last month published an article called The Essence of Bitcoin. So this one sounds similar called The Substance of Bitcoin. Uh, so I just need another third word and I can even make it a trilogy for, for next month. But, um, but it is, you know, you were talking about the long term. And I think one of the most remarkable things about this is this is an indestructible substance. Right? Like, um, I didn't go into that particular detail of it because everybody's quite aware of it. But you cannot you cannot convert the substance into something else um, and you cannot taint it. And it exists 100 percent pure, which is a point I did make. Right? Like any amount of Bitcoin you ever receive you validate it and it's a hundred percent pure. It's not like mixed in with something else. It's not an alloy. It can't be, you, you can't be fooled in one of these things. Anyone can validate its existence and it exists a hundred percent pure. Like you've never really had a hundred percent pure anything, even the purest gold bars say 99.9% uh, pure. And just because they say it doesn't mean it is like with Bitcoin, it is. Right? Your, your node validates that the Bitcoin and the, unspent transaction output you have is Bitcoin. And that's all it is. It's 100% pure Bitcoin. That share of the 21 million that can and ever will exist or however you like to look at it, maybe you like to look at it as a percentage of the existing supply. And you know, in being 100% pure, it's uncontaminated. It can't, and it can't be contaminated with anything else. So imagine a substance that couldn't be contaminated with anything else. So that's a pretty magical property. And, and so Bitcoin has all of these unique properties that no other substance that we've ever come across has, because it's not really a substance. It's this digital idea enforced by these things, but you can treat it and look at it as a substance. And maybe many people will in the, in the future in quite a meaningful way. And uh, anyhow, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit long. I hope I've given you the answer that uh, <laughs> fills the time you need to be filled. And was at least intriguing enough. Yeah, no, man. I always, I always enjoy talking talking to you, listening to your thoughts around your writing. I, uh, indestructible property rights. I think it's overlooked, and I, I'm, it's it's the innovation I believe in Bitcoin is having indestructible property rights and the ability to verify that with a node. Um, the entire history is that's that's. Bitcoin, right? That that is the innovation, in my opinion. Um, and so I think that's kind of what you were touching on in terms of this has never existed before. And so how do we, um, how do people think about this new technology, or like I guess you called substance that's never ever existed before with these certain unique properties? So I love thinking about that stuff. And Tomer, you always uh, stimulate me like that. So thanks, brother. I always enjoy your writing, man. Everyone should check it out. The blog's full of your pieces. Um, so go to swan.com and check out those those blogs written by Tomer. Lots of good stuff by you too, there, Sam. Yeah, so I'm getting DMs that uh, I'm triggering about my last comments about capitulation event. Look, I'm not sorry that I believe that we're going to have another nasty capitulation event. Like we haven't even seen uh, like the inevitable collapse of the ordinals NFT marketplace, quote unquote. So, which of course, in my mind, might be a huge, massive buying opportunity. But you know, fuck do I know? The good news that I have, if I'm triggering you with my capitulation comments is 
that if you are like me and you have a vision for Bitcoin, it takes time to get there. But if you believe that the current price action is a couple of magnitudes at least uh, lower than what you truly value it in your mind, then it doesn't fucking matter. It's a great place to store your money in 2023 in that context to treat it as a savings account and just keep riding the ride. But don't say I didn't warn you if it happens. <laughs> don't you threaten me with cheap sats. Don't you do that. It's always hard to pick a bottom in these cycles. I mean, when, when you know, the fact is that like when FTX collapsed, um, you saw like it was basically the one of the worst case scenarios. I mean, you know, one of the biggest crypto casinos turned out to be a giant Ponzi, right? Um, and this was kind of towards the end of the bear market. And then you had Bitcoin's price, you know, bottom out at around minus 75% uh, from the all time high. But you also saw the selling pressure. It kind of stabilized, right? Despite all that negative news, that's kind of the things you'd like to see um, to form some kind of capitulation event to mark a bottom in a bear market. But you're right, and like there could be other tailwinds down the line, and there could be a retest of those lows. And to not mentally prepare for that would be, uh, I think, the wrong choice, right? You you can't just assume that it's never going to retest those things. Always mentally prepare for for another capitulation event down the road. Um, but certainly the FTX stuff, I mean, it, you kind of, the way that the selling pressure happened, it kind of stabilized around whatever, whatever it was, 16 K. Um, that is the kind of things that I look for to mark a bottom, but you never know. You never know. So you always got to mentally prepare yourself. One, uh, we're going to have SAS mining on here in a little bit. Um, you know, I, I do think about different sectors of the industry and the miners really took one on the, you know, took one in the jaw during the bear market for a lot of different reasons. You know, they, a lot of them took on a lot of leverage. Um, they overexpanded in the bull market. Um, they didn't have really proper treasury management of their Bitcoin. Um, a lot of them were holding the Bitcoin as it kind of dropped precipitously in price. Um, and their their stocks, a lot of them went public and they just got hammered. Um, so we saw bankruptcies. We saw um, all kinds of things in the mining space, as well as, uh, you know, their profitability really tank when you look at things like hash price. Um, but 2023, they've, they've started to really benefit um, from the not only the rise in Bitcoin's price, um, but some of the stronger miners um, who have survived have, have been able to take market share. You know, it's an extremely competitive industry. Um, and so I'm excited to talk to miners because I think I, this is healthy. I think you see this like cleansing uh, that occurs in the mining industry, every bear market where the less efficient operators get washed out. Um, and, and the really the ones that benefit are the operations that are run by good leaders. 
um, and have really quality operations. And so um, I'm excited to bring on uh, a SaaS mining um, as well as uh, I think Kent um, uh, from SaaS mining is here. And then I don't know who's behind the, the SaaS mining logo. I don't know if that's you, William, or, or somebody else, but welcome to the stage, guys. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you guys. Yeah, I'm really pumped to be here. It's been quite some time since we've been on. So uh, the voice behind the SaaS mining is uh, Maruga, our uh, our head of content, and she's also the host of our Twitter spaces. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah, so maybe uh, maybe start off by saying a little bit about SaaS mining, uh, where you guys uh, kind of located, um, how long have you guys been in, in, in the business for, uh, just a little background would probably help set the stage. Yeah, for sure. So uh, SaaS Mining has actually been around since 2018, started off with a little bit of hobby farming and then pivoted into consulting. Uh, and then we raised some capital in 2021 and realized that the, um, you know, the, the pleb hosting market was being underserved. And we thought we could throw our hat in the ring and service that a bit better. And I think uh, we've come out of the chute here with our first facility during the depths of the bear market. It's a hydropower facility located in Wisconsin. Uh, and we've got it completely at capacity now. And um, our next facility we're arranging is down in Paraguay. Uh, and that might be an interesting separate conversation to talk about, but um, we're actively filling uh, slots right now. Um, and those mining rigs will be live in approximately three to five months. We're finishing final due diligence on that site as we speak. But yeah, we're, uh, we're pretty much the only option in the market if you wanted to mine clean Bitcoin in an easy way. So um, we were talking earlier about some of these, I guess you could say, legislative victories. Um, you know, some of these Texas bills that were passed or not passed. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts as a miner, um, as, as somebody who works for a mining company, if you had any thoughts around this. Yeah, very much so I do. Um, so I, uh, I, I head up a internal operations for the company and, you know, as we were sort of assessing the risks, like I, I never really uh, perceived that Bitcoin mining was going to be banned in the U.S. or taxed. But what I was concerned about as a miner and still have some lingering concern about is that it sends a, a cooling signal to the market for both investors and people wanting to mine. Hey, maybe it's not so good or safe to mine in the U.S. And so um, it's actually one of the core reasons why we decided to move to Paraguay for our next facility, just to diversify our risk a little bit so that customers and investors in SAS mining didn't look at the situation and say, oh, this isn't worth doing. We could just short circuit that by being um, outside the U.S. jurisdiction. But um, I was very happy to see that uh, there's sort of several things going on, not just in Texas, but across the U.S. right now that seems to show that the narrative is is being thwarted to uh, to stymie Bitcoin mining. You know, Texas rolled back its legislation uh, effort. Um, you know, the Dame tax looks like it's been removed from uh, the Democratic push. 
you know, that was the 30% tax on electricity used by mining. Um, and then there's been a couple of wins by the Satoshi Action Fund at the state level um, to make uh, right to mine laws uh, or to put right to mine laws into place in those states. So all in all, it seems like there's a, a swelling tide of uh, political support right now for Bitcoin mining, which is just wonderful to see. So you weren't really uh, worried about that Dane tax or anything uh, substantial to come from that, and, and you don't really expect that to happen in the future. Some kind of uh, you know specific tax on Bitcoin miners. Honestly, I don't even know how they would implement that sort of a law from a federal level. Um, I think that there was constitutional challenges there with, you know, electricity censorship uh, that they'd be opening themselves up to. And then if you actually get down to how the grid is, is patchwork quilted together with the various, you know, public private utilities, um, the co-ops, like, it just seems like it would be an absolute nightmare uh, to implement. Um, so I, I have no idea how they would have actually accomplished it. So uh, I think that there's always a risk uh, if the political body of the U.S. turns against Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. But the more that Bitcoin adoption continues to grow, the more that risk tends to recede, in my opinion. One hundred percent. And you talked about basically how you as a company, you guys are thinking about how to reduce some, I guess, regulatory risk, thinking about the jurisdiction of your operations and uh, the move to Paraguay. And so what did you find interesting about Paraguay uh, specifically? I was wondering. Yeah, I, uh, I find the entire Paraguay situation to be completely fascinating. And I think it's a story that a lot of folks in the Bitcoin mining space uh, or Bitcoin space in general are going to learn more about in the years ahead. So um, I don't know how familiar you, will, uh, you and your audience are with gridless compute and what they're doing out in Africa. Uh, but in essence, what they're doing is they're finding these small power generation operators and they're coming in with Bitcoin mining and helping to provide more revenue uh, to these power generators. And that extra revenue then enables them to stabilize and build more electrical infrastructure for the local microgrids. In essence, that story is the same in Paraguay, except for at a larger scale. So the the story in Paraguay is that there's a Itapu Dam is the name of it. It's a 14 gigawatt dam, and it spans a river that is owned on one side by Brazil and on the other side by Paraguay. And so they both, in essence, have about seven gigs worth of uh, power, gigawatts worth of power. But the problem is that Paraguay cannot utilize all that power and they can't utilize all that power because they actually haven't built out a grid sufficient to utilize it all. So what happens? Well, about uh, at least two gigawatts worth of the power that is generated on their side is sold to Brazil basically for a song at cost. So they're not earning anything for that uh, electricity. So much like gridless compute on the microgrid scale in Africa, the Bitcoin mining community is showing up and it is putting all these mining operations in place. They're having to build substations. They're having to build electrical infrastructure 
And, you know, Brandon Quittem's talked about the, the pioneer species and it's happening in a massive scale there, but showing up, paying a higher price for the power than what Brazil is paying, that revenue is now all going to Andy, the local utility and electrical infrastructure showing up to support other types of uh, electrical and power needs throughout Paraguay. So I see the entire uh, Paraguayan um, uh, nation being lifted up by Bitcoin mining because the biggest, um, the biggest commodity that Paraguay sells right now is power. That's really interesting. So you go into Paraguay, they have this excess energy. Bitcoin miners can be just moved to those energy resources. And then what you're kind of talking about is the secondary consequences of helping bootstrap these communities, right? Um, by, by providing them with something, some profits and, and ways to utilize those stranded energy resources and build community around them. And so SAS Mining is kind of coming in there and helping provide that. Um, that service uh, for them. Is that right? Yeah, much better said and more eloquently said than I did there, Sam. But um, I think the, the, the key thing to, for me is that rather than this just happening on a community level, like because the entire grid of Paraguay is being run by this hydroelectric dam, what it means is we're actually doing this on a nation state level for all of Paraguay when we come in there and buy up this power. It's not just a local community, although it is helping local communities with the jobs for the local folks that we're employing to help with the, the mining operations. But it's actually providing an uplift to the entire uh, economic force of Paraguay itself. That's very cool. Oh, it sounds like a win-win, both from you guys. Um, it, it, like when you when you think about the regulatory risk, I guess in the United States, like some of these uh, proposals that have come through, like you said, like you don't know if there's any actually uh, weight to them or if they'll actually come to fruition. But as a business, I imagine you have to at least think about um, risk. So when you think about when you talk to other people in the mining industry. Do you see that other companies are kind of thinking the same thing? They're thinking, okay, we gotta maybe uh, you know, have some kind of backup plans in place um, and think about operations outside the United States just in case. Um, is that what you're seeing or more broadly or maybe in the chatter amongst the, you know, the participants in the mining industry? You know, when I was at Bitcoin Miami a couple of weeks ago and hanging out in the, the, the mining lounge, I was shocked by how many folks were setting up operations outside of the U.S., now, these are small mining operations. I don't anticipate uh, many of the large publicly traded uh, miners to, to be making similar efforts to diversify their, their risk. Um, and, you know, I, I, let me caveat that comment. I didn't speak to many publicly traded mining companies, uh, but all the smaller players that I was speaking to there were looking uh, to set up operations in remote geographies. And I don't know if it was specifically because of uh, jurisdictional risk, like we were perceiving, um, but there was a lot of advantage to that. And, you know, some of the advantage to that comes from a, uh, a lot of investors out of the U.S. It just don't know how to assess other jurisdictions, so it leaves room for uh, you know foreign capital to come into those jurisdictions um, and take advantage of electricity prices. Um, 
And B, I also think that it um, provides an opportunity for companies like SAS Mining that, you know, we are a remote only company. Uh, I'm specifically living in Peru. In fact, I think I have the glorious distinction of being the only person uh, to have a Bitcoin mining node in the Amazon. Um, but, you know, being remotely located and with an office in Lima as well, which I always remind people Lima is a larger city than New York City, um, gives us opportunity to sort of straddle and look for opportunities outside the U.S. because, and thankfully, Bitcoin mining is a is a global network, and we don't need to be restricted by nation state borders. Well said. And that, that's the risk, right? That innovation is going to be driven offshore uh, from the United States if if some of these more negative uh, pieces of legislation get through. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier. But as a as a business, you have to think about that stuff. You have to. Um, when you're thinking about your long-term longevity. Um, and yeah, go on, Ken. I, I was just going to say 100%. And, and I mean, even uh, even as a mining company, we've had conversations, you know, we've not taken any action, but we're looking at things like Strike setting up an office in El Salvador and saying, hey, you know, if push comes to shove, are we ready to change our corporate headquarters to another jurisdiction? And of course, we're all nodding our head and saying yes. But I mean, these are very odd risks to have to think about as a business. Like, hey, can we operate in the country that we are incorporated in in the future? Uh, can we get banks? But you know, this is just kind of what comes with the territory. Uh, choosing <clears throat> choosing to uh, to work in the business model that we have. So despite those challenges, uh, right now you guys are in the midst of an equity raise. Is that what you said? Yeah, we are. Uh, quite proud of it, too. So we've got a uh, start engine uh, offer that is available to anybody, um, except for if you're in the UK or Canada due to securities restrictions. But it is available to anybody that wants to um, take a piece of ownership or take a position in SAS mining itself, which as a mining company, you know, if historical precedent plays out again, you know, uh, equity in mining companies tends to outperform in, in bull markets and, and vice versa in bear markets, I guess I should say. Uh, but it's available to anybody outside the UK or Canada for as little as $350. And you can find that just by going to sasmining.com and, and uh, we've got a nice banner there, but we're down to the last 30 days for that campaign. Yeah, good luck with that. I mean, it's always uh, good to see people raising um, or getting good interest in their raises in the midst of a bear market. Um, that shows kind of the quality of your people and the operations, as well as, uh, you know, Bitcoin miners getting some support. It's, a, it's always a good thing to see. So on the ground, though, what, what are you seeing in terms of people who are choosing to mine right now? I, I was wondering, because in 2021, you saw kind of this wave of, of home mining and people like scrambling to buy ASICs. You saw ASIC prices really spike. Um, and then you saw all that kind of come crashing down in 2022. But I was wondering what kind of uh, customers are you seeing or what kind of interest are you seeing just from people on the ground who are deciding to start their own mining operations? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a really interesting question. So um, given that we just filled our first facility in the first quarter of the year, um, 
I may change my answer at the peak of a bull market, but what we're seeing right now is customers that are primarily motivated to cycle their fiat into Bitcoin and do it in a way where they avoid price volatility and they get KYC-free sats uh, for doing so. Um, so I find it really interesting because it's almost as if the, uh, the ease at which we're able to provide Bitcoin mining to people is allowing them to have an exchange alternative uh, by working with us. You know, we don't touch their, their Bitcoin. That it goes straight to their wallet. Uh, directly from the mining pool. And so we're just providing the service uh, for their mining rig. And, you know, the, the, the business model is also such that we take 5% from the mining pool uh, and that goes to our wallet. And that's how we cover our costs. We don't mark up the rigs. We don't mark up the hosting costs. But in general, our customers are seeing that and saying, great, uh, this is this is a, an interesting way to, to acquire SaaS without um, KYC or an exchange involved. Um the other thing that I find very interesting is just in general, how the pendulum swings. So you mentioned mining rig prices, right? And if you look, the, the unit by which you, you price ASICs is the dollars per terahash. So your typical uh, mining rig is somewhere between 100 terahash and 150 terahash right now in the marketplace. And, you know, rig prices have been somewhere around $20 a terahash uh, to retail uh, for most of this year. But at the peak of the last bull market, they were as much as $120 a terahash. Uh, and so that means that there's a potential, you know, should history repeat itself, that uh, the value of mining rigs purchased today could be as much as 6x uh, their current value. So w what we see is that the cash flow right now doesn't look particularly great uh, to be mining Bitcoin, but uh, people are purchasing mining rigs because they have the belief that the Bitcoin cycle is going to continue, which I think we all do if we're here. Um, and that the best way to take advantage of that is by buying mining rigs when prices are low and uh, getting them plugged in, ready to go for the bull run. Because once the bull run starts, it's almost impossible to get your ASICs and uh, get your ASICs in time to be plugged in to take advantage of that bull run. Uh, so those that are sitting pretty ahead of that are the ones that get to take the the most advantage of it. So that was kind of a long-winded response there, uh, Sam. I don't know if you have follow-up questions or want to dig in more to, to an aspect I talked about there. Well, I, I do a little... I, I do have a question and some more about SaaS mining in general and apologies that, you know, I'm not that familiar with the business model, but I'd love to learn about it right now. So if I'm a customer, is there a way for me to ever take custody of the ASIC machine itself? Um, or is it always, uh, you know, uh, you guys are doing the operation. Is that the trade-off where I kind of give up a little bit of serenity uh, to, to the mining machine itself? So I don't have to ha deal with like the hassle of running it. And you guys take that and then I get the non-KYC Bitcoin. Is that is that kind of the case? Or can I ever take self-custody of the ASIC machine? Unfortunately, I got to give you a nuanced answer. Uh, I wish I could be totally straightforward on this one. But here's, here's the, here is the trade-off. So A, there is a trade-off. Uh, and the trade-off is, hey... Um, it's not worth it for us to, to host your mining rig if you want to take immediate ownership of it. So we ask for a year uh, of being uh, with the service, uh, being with our service. And I don't think that that's a, that's a tough ask. But after that year, 
we offer four different options for our customers to exit that agreement. One is they can just walk away and say, hey, you guys take ownership. Two, they can ask us to recycle the mining rig uh, for a fee, and we will. We'll just take it off the shelf and make sure it gets uh, broken down. Uh, I don't think that too many people will take advantage of those two options. The third option uh, is what I think most people will take advantage of, which is they could sell in the private market their mining rig and we'll, um, we will reassign that mining rig to another user. Um, and then four, if you're in the same jurisdiction as the mining rig, we will ship it to you. Uh, so that answers the specific question. But what's what's interesting about that is you're not going to want to do that if your mining rig is in Paraguay. Uh, the, the export costs uh, for the mining rig and the shipping is just probably not going to be worth it. So that is that is one of the trade-offs for us going to Paraguay is, is although the electricity prices are looking to be very cheap, you know, like four cents a kilowatt hour cheap, um, it doesn't it doesn't mean that it will be easy for us to ship mining rigs back to customers in the U.S. Now, you do get your serial number. So it is your mining rig. Um, it's, this is no cloud mining situation that we're offering here. This is this is truly, you know, hosted and, and Bitcoin mining as a service that we're offering. Uh, thanks for clearing that up, Kent. I, I was just curious myself. Uh, that was a well-nuanced answer. So thank you for that. I uh, So, uh, you know, I, I spoke with a lot of mining uh mining executives when I was in Miami and they were kind of talking about how operational efficiency is going to become the name of the game moving forward in mining. Uh, so they're looking at things like immersion cooling and, and other like pieces of software that gives them any kind of advantage over other mining operations because it's such a competitive industry. And so um, does SAS mining kind of think about that? Obviously you guys use hydroelectric, um, which can be seen as like a really cheap source of energy. Um, what kind of things do you guys think about in terms of improving your operational efficiencies to uh, remain competitive? Yeah, so, I mean, the way we think about it, uh, because our business model is aligned 100% with our customers, meaning we only make uh, money when our customers are receiving mining rewards, um, that we want to uh, offer the most operationally efficient uh mining we can now we are relatively new so um you know being that this, this facility in paraguay is our second um we're developing those operational capacity uh those operational capacities as we scale uh and so some things are on the road roadmap but at this point you know the major focus has been acquiring lower power price because lower and and uh, cheaper energy is one of the easiest ways to over, overcome operational efficiencies. Uh, so, you know, that's that four cent per kilowatt hour energy versus in Paraguay versus, um, you know, we're offering it closer to seven and a half cents in uh, Wisconsin uh, while that facility was being filled. So uh, in the future, though, we do plan to offer um, uh uh, different uh, mining firmware, you know, that's on a roadmap is to be able to offer the uh, Brains OS uh, to get more operational efficiency. We do want to look at immersion mining uh, to be able to overclock the mining rigs and get more operational efficiency. So nothing that the large players are doing is off the roadmap for us. Uh, but you're right. It's a constant game of, of needing to incrementally approve to uh, to stay competitive in our industry. 
Yeah, and, and you're certainly right. Like, uh, you know, you can improve the efficiencies with all the different things you just said, but also just getting the cheapest energy uh, source that goes a long way in terms of that equation. So um, I was wondering, how do you guys like find these, uh, you know, cheap sources of energy, like, you know, hydroelectric in Wisconsin, like how does that come on your radar or is it just, you know, doing market research and reaching out to people or I was just kind of curious about that. Man, I, I have to say this is, uh, well, I guess the, the joking answer is by being on the, on, on cafe Bitcoin here. Uh, but the, the real answer is that it, it takes a lot of hard work. I mean, it's an opaque market, their efforts to open it up, but it's sort of the, the closely guarded secret that nobody wants to talk about too openly is, you know, where you're getting your power from. Uh, it is a bit of a zero sum game finding that, that cheap power out there, but just, genuinely us having a brand forward approach like we do leads people to find us because oftentimes they're hosting providers and power sources that are wanting to serve this market but can't figure out who to contact so just by us being out in the marketplace we're a bit of a, a lightning rod that attracts attention and I, I mean as an example um, I have in my inbox right now another another hosting provider in Paraguay that's reached out and they've reached out because they heard that we were coming to Paraguay so you know it's it's uh it's difficult to get the momentum going, but once it's going, more opportunities are finding us. Makes a lot of sense. And with Paragrade, did you have to have conversations with the local, like the government there about, you know, having a Bitcoin mining operation, uh, you know, start up there? And did you have to have conversations at all with them? Oh, so yeah, let me, let me be clear. There is no way I would go to Paraguay without um, some sort of joint venture or partnership that uh, with somebody that has a lay of the land and has been doing it down there for years. I mean, going into a jurisdiction like that. Um, so I live in Latin America uh, and have lived in Latin America for several years now. And as important as relationships may be in the U.S., uh, they really make or break it for your business um, in Latin America. And I I would not feel comfortable <clears throat> going there if we didn't have somebody that's been operating for several years and has uh, has helped to set up, you know, um, more than 20 megawatts worth of capacity uh, and has relationships with the government. You know, these, these sort of things are really important. And that's part of the value proposition that we bring to the table is to source and vet um, those types of partnerships and relationships our customers don't have to. I mean, we estimate that if you wanted to go out and get access to low cost mining and start it from scratch. Uh, so this isn't, this isn't, you know, your retail rates that you can plug into your garage and get, but, but really like have the low cost rates that a company like SAS mining can offer uh, to the, the end retail space. We're talking probably more than 7 million in five months at a very bare minimum to get there. I mean, it is non-trivial to find that power and arrange it and get it set up and, and then provide enough uh, because it takes so much power that you need to contractually obligate yourself to buy. You also need a lot of mining rigs, and that's where a lot of the expense comes in. Sorry, can I just jump in with a question? I, I, maybe I missed it and you said it, but like, are you operational already? And how much energy are you operational with if so for present? Or is that something? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, happy to, to share. So we are operational. We've got a megawatt, uh, 1.2 megawatts in operation, 37 petahash in Wisconsin. It's hydropowered, 100% hydropowered. It's right next to a, a small dam. Uh, we're purchasing it behind the meter directly from the dam operator. Um, and Paraguay, we're estimating to be live in between three to five months. That's great. Um, do you have, uh, just the other day, you may not have many details, but Tether announced that they were going to start Tether mining in Uruguay, all, again, exclusively with renewable energy, in their case, wind and solar. I think they were specific about, are there similarities, differences, or how do you feel about it? Just curious. Yeah, I find Tether mining uh, Bitcoin to be an absolutely fascinating wrinkle in the marketplace. Uh, so less so their their choice of Uruguay, although I'm not completely surprised. Both Uruguay and Paraguay have a lot of hydro. I mean, Paraguay is 100% hydro running their grid. Uruguay, I'm not as familiar with the grid makeup, but I do know that it's a primarily agricultural-based country that has more hydropower than it can use. But what I find actually more fascinating is how Tether appears to be positioning itself as an emergent euro dollar blockchain based um central bank almost you know they're backing themselves with bitcoin they're backing themselves with gold they're backing themselves with treasuries you know kind of a a basket of commodities and uh utilizing the branding of the u.s dollar uh to offer their tethers and to me them going into mining allows them to now get kyc free um, Bitcoin for their for their capital deployed into mining. And so what are they doing with that? I mean, uh, Tether is always operated on the margin. So I could see they're, ha they're perceiving some sort of advantage to acquiring Bitcoin in that fashion. Well, uh, Ken, uh, this was really enlightening and just learning a little bit more about, um, you know, SAS mining, the mining industry in general from, from an operator. Um, what gets you excited when you look ahead, maybe one year, two year, and maybe going into the halving? Um, what are some things that are exciting to you? What do you think maybe are some challenges that the mining industry faces? I'd love to just hear a more uh, broad overview of how you're feeling. Yeah, I think <clears throat> for me, I uh, I can't remember who was talking earlier uh, about how they were worried that there may be a, a capitulation event in the future. You know, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, but what I do know is that this is sort of the, the proving grounds for, for Bitcoin miners. Those of us that survive this bear market and make it to the bull market, you know, it's almost like you've reached the, the halls of uh, uh, the hallway of Valhalla, right? And uh, the promised land, because uh, your survival is, is a lot more assured at that point. Um, and so I think that as difficult as the bear market has been, it's also been extremely beneficial to train discipline in our organization uh, and to uh, hone our focus uh, as a team. So I find it to be um, both something I'm looking forward to very much, the bull market, but also know that I'll be a little bit sad and, and look at these hard times through uh, rose-colored lenses. Um, 
I am looking forward to seeing uh, where the narrative goes uh, for Bitcoin in this next uh, cycle. Um, you know, we've got uh, Bitcoin Miami. We had three different presidential candidates talking about Bitcoin. So the fact that we're now at the, the presidential level narrative, I find to be really exciting. It feels like um, perhaps we're at the, the last potential election where um, it could be even something you stand against. Uh, and that's just an extremely exciting uh, prospect to me. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I'd leave it there for now. Absolutely. I mean, exciting times when you got three presidential candidates talking about Bitcoin. I remember three, four years ago, I mean, we got excited when like a Bitcoin ticker went on Bloomberg. <laughs> so it's always uh, when you zoom out like that, it's kind of crazy to think about how uh, Bitcoin has infected the mindshare of uh, society more broadly. Um, and I think that speaks to a lot of different things. But uh, Peter, you got your hand up. Yeah, Kent, uh, thanks for sharing. Great. Uh... A uh, great opportunity to learn more. If if you were to uh, uh, give yourself some advice, um, you know your past self some advice about going into a foreign country and setting up a business, uh, in, you know in, in any kind of business, but in particular uh, the one that you've uh, that you've done. Uh, what what would that advice be to your to yourself as as you were starting this uh, this trip? Boy, you know, I have to say, I, I, I am an American, but I have lived outside of the U.S. for more than a decade now, uh, Portugal and Peru specifically. Um, and what I've learned in those two experiences from a um, personal level is, you know, don't try to figure it all out yourself, but hire competent subject matter experts and spend the money because it will save you a lot in the long run. Um, so I would I would hone in on relationships that uh, can benefit you, uh, whether you need to pay for them or just develop them personally. But I find that relationships are the key to uh, to unlock and local business success, especially when you're in a place and you can't get rid of your accent. Uh, that always makes you an outsider and an other. Um, and so the best way to get around that is through, uh, relationships that you develop and partnerships. Well, we're coming up on uh, the end of the show here. I, I thought it'd be a good time just to go around. If anybody has any closing comments, including Kent, um, maybe sharing where they can find more information, uh, about SAS mining or anything else you want to end with, um, let's go around the horn and, and if anyone has any closing comments. We'll start with you, Kent, though. Yeah, absolutely brilliant to be up here to share. Um, I think as far as mining goes, I think that people get really wrapped up in the numbers. And, and I see the people that are most successful in mining are just sort of like keep deploying, keep deploying. Um, and I think that it's an exciting uh, opportunity to be in the space and, and be providing people the opportunity uh, to mine their own Bitcoin straight to their wallet. I get really excited when customers show me the, the rewards that they've earned. So pumped to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to share about that. You can find us at sasmining.com and my DMs are open. Always keep them open. So if anybody wants to follow up and ask me direct questions, you know, reach out, follow up. I'll uh, be happy to talk with you. Uh, thanks so much for, for having us here though today, Sam.
Uh, if nobody else has some final comments, I think that would be a good way to end it. Um, thanks so much for uh, SAS Mining for joining us and Kent. Um, and thanks for everyone for listening and all the speakers that came up and shared their thoughts and insights. It's always appreciated. Um, this is Cafe Bitcoin. This is the number one place for Bitcoin news every weekday morning. Um, this is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, Bitcoin financial services company. Um, just a reminder, we are throwing the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. Um, it is out in Santa Monica, and it is one of my favorite conferences um, of the year. I had a great time last time, so go check it out. Um, if you want to hear more about it, uh, go to PacificBitcoin.com. And so everyone have a wonderful day. Stack stats, learning, and uh, we'll be here tomorrow, uh, just like a new day. So thanks so much for listening.